Well, when you were a kid, perhaps you used the great <coughs> binding contract of the pinky swear. You know, it's like, so you want to know for sure somebody's going to do something, like, well, will you pinky swear? You know, hand out the pinky, and you pinky swear with somebody. Um, so, you know, that binding contract we did as kids. And as adults, we do the same thing, um, but usually with different words. When we want to make sure someone's going to do what they told us they're going to do, we ask, well, do you promise? And at, at times, we need reassurance, um, more reassurance than simply hearing from somebody, yes, I'll do it. We say, like, will you please pinky swear? Or, like, oh, do you promise you'll do that? And whether we're kids or teenagers or adults, we understand the importance of someone keeping their word because relationships are built on trust, of trusting that the other person is going to do what they say and what, what, when they say something that they actually mean it. And we're going to consider um, two questions as we start our time together. Um, first is, how does it feel not knowing whether someone will do what they say? And we're just going to write on the whiteboard, um, how does it feel when when you don't know whether someone's going to do what they say. Frustrated. Frustrated, yeah. You'd be scared if you trusted them with something big. Scared? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're going to come through. Yeah, they just gave us in their hands. feel not knowing someone's going to do what they say they're going to do. It might make you feel anxious. Anxious? Like not knowing how it's going to turn out. Yeah, I think I, when I don't know if somebody's going to do something, I feel like I just keep worrying about it and keep thinking about it. Like, are they going to do it? I really need them to do this. Angry, too. Could be angry, disappointed, Carol said. Switch to a slightly different question. How does it feel when someone breaks a promise to you? It could be similar words. Is there anything else you'd add? Feel kind of betrayed. Betrayed, yeah. How does it feel when someone breaks a promise? I covered everything. i got to be honest, kind of used to it. <laughs> it happens a lot more today than it did 20 so you years ago. you feel like, okay, this is like the same old thing. Yeah. Kind of, so you're like, it's, it's almost like what you more. expected, maybe. Yes. So, yeah, that's really sad that we would feel that. Sometimes it's uh, necessary to have a plan B. So, oh. As, uh, as, as uh, Shane said, it's very common so, so you might have already been planning, like, I don't know if I can trust this person, so I already have a plan. I've already, like, done yeah. plan B, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the other side would be, I started on the negative because I, and maybe this kind of goes to Shane's point, um, that I was trying to think, so the second question I want to answer is, how does it feel knowing someone will do what they say? And when I was thinking about how to answer that, I was like, I'm not, it's hard to, like, imagine, Imagine how that feels, because maybe it goes kind of what Shane says. Like, man, we're maybe we're often disappointed with other people. So, so, so we did the negative because we can maybe think, okay, what's the opposite of that? So, how does it feel when we know someone's going to do what they said they're going to do? It's kind of relief, actually. Yeah, relief. Oh, I can just hand this off. 
actually taken care of in the same kind of vein. Taken you know, care of, yeah. You can let, if you know that someone is, yeah, you, that, that's a help to you. Mm -hmm. to, to Almost you. like handed it off, right. like, okay, you're taking care of this, you're taking care of me. They feel loved. Loved. We have like peace and calm about whatever it is. something we want them to do it it's like I've kind of like given control over you I've been vulnerable and then when they don't do it you know we feel all that all that kind of stuff you know last call any other things that come to mind okay so in our as we continue this series beginning the journey home we're continuing um, going through Abram's story is God's plan is to bring blessing back to the world through Abram. God wants to use Abram to bring humanity back home. And so with Abram, this journey of humanity coming back home begins. And last week we saw Abram renew his trust in God after he had this failure of faith down in Egypt. And then he rescues his nephew, um, who's a prisoner of war, um, due to this big battle, and he rescues him. And then we saw how Abram was clinging to God with hope, which enabled him to open his hands in generosity to other people. And in today's passage, we see Abram is struggling to trust again. God promised to make him into a great nation some time ago, um, but he still doesn't have kids. Um, he still doesn't have a land to call his own. And Abram seems to be thinking, God, you told me that I'd be a great nation, but I'm still childless and I'm still landless. And we may wonder, well, what is up with this guy? We've only been covering him from chapter 12 now chapter 15, and it's like his trust is just going up and down all the time with God. Um, and we may wonder, what the heck is his deal? Um, but isn't, if we think about it, isn't that really how we often feel like our life is going as well? We make decisions one day that show our great trust in God, and then the next day, or maybe even the next hour or next minute, we're doing something that shows, wow, I'm not really trusting God with this other situation. And I love building and then sitting around campfires, or like arranging the sticks with the paper in the fire pit, and then getting the fire going, and slowly adding stuff, and eventually being able to add logs, and then sitting around and enjoying it. And as you sit around the fire pit, if you don't do anything to it, it's going to kind of just slowly die down. It might even go all the way down to just these kind of hot um, coals. Um, and then you add more logs, and then it'll build back up again. And our faith works kind of like a fire. Sometimes it's a roaring fire. And then sometimes it dies down and maybe feels like all we have left are these smoldering coals. And the big question this passage answers is, how does God strengthen flickering faith? How does God strengthen flickering faith? And when faith dies down and it's maybe just this little bitty flame or these couple hot coals, like how does God strengthen that? And maybe even hearing, wait, God strengthens flickering faith is a new concept to you because maybe you think God's kind of like, you've got to figure this faith thing out. And he's not really doing much of anything to strengthen it or help it. And so maybe just that question is new to you. And there's these two cycles of God responding to Abram's flickering faith in this passage. In the first cycle, God addresses Abram's doubts over being childless in verses 1 through 6. And verse 1 tells us this. 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And sometime after the battle, rescuing his nephew Lot in the last chapter, God comes and he talks to Abram. And often when God appears to people, they're kind of like afraid, and he has to tell them, fear not, and kind of comfort them. The presence of God is a little alarming um, because we're not used to just seeing God right in front of us in that way. Um, but in here, Abram has something on his mind, and God has come to talk it through with him. That was kind of the word Larry used. Was he's kind of like talking him through it. Um, when Larry and I were studying this passage this week, and Abram is fearful and worried, and God tells him, don't be afraid, Abram. Your reward shall be very great. He needs to be reminded that God desires to bless him and desires to give him um, what he's promised him. And in verse 2, Abram tells God, well, this is what's on my mind. Verse, verse 2 says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will he give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. At this point, Abram is just over 75 years old. His wife is barren, and they've tried for decades and decades to have kids, but they haven't been able to have any. And then God comes to him and says, Well, I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abram. And then later he promises, he's like, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But now it's perhaps been months or years after God made this promise to him, and still Sarai, his wife, isn't pregnant. And you'd assume, it's like, okay, God just said we're going to get pregnant. Let's go try to get pregnant. You know, so you assume they've been trying, and it's like month after month, still hasn't happened. And if you think, if you hear that from God, you're like, okay, it's going to happen. If even you went for six months or a year, you'd be like, man, what is going on, God? And he's like, Eliezer of Damascus um, is probably one of Abram's like trusted servants. And he's like, God, I don't have any kids of my own. Um, so I'm, you know, in my will, I'm going to sign all my stuff over to Eliezer of Damascus, to one of my servants when I die. And God made him a promise, but Abram's fearing, feeling fearful and doubting. He's like, is this really going to happen, God? I mean, are you really going to do this? You haven't done it yet. And so maybe think to yourself, how many of you have ever felt like Abram, wondering if God is going to come through? Like, God, are you going to come through for me? Are you going to be there for me? And how does God respond? First, he reassures him verbally in verse 4. Verse 4 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Then, after this, he reassures him visually in verse 5. In the darkness of night, God leads Abram out of his tent and says in verse 5, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And imagine this moment is one that Abram came back to a lot of times in his mind because it's just kind of things like this just impressing your memory. God leads him out of his tent, has him look up at the stars, and it's like that's going to stick in his mind. And maybe you have some special moments in your life where you felt God was really guiding you and speaking you to you and reassuring you. And maybe it isn't as something as remarkable as like, oh, God's word like came like into my head and I heard his voice audibly and like he led me out, out of my tent to check out the stars. But maybe there's those moments where like, man, I felt like God was there and he spoke to me. He gave me some promises or reassured me or got me on the right path or something. And let's see how Abram responds. How does he respond in verse 6? Verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord. He trusted him. 
And at this point, Abram is an old man with no children and a wife who hasn't been able to get pregnant their entire marriage. I don't know when they got married, 20 years old, so how long have they been trying? 55 years? It's like he still, she still hasn't gotten pregnant. And even though nothing has changed about his circumstances, Abram believed God when he told him, you're going to have a son, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. Even though when he looks at himself, there's no evidence that that is going to be true. He trusts that God can do it and that he will do it. He's going to be, make him into a great nation. Let's consider um, the four G's here. If you haven't been here, if you don't remember them, we have this little thing up here. I'm sorry that you guys over there can't see it very well. Um, but we have these four things. I could actually hold it and we can all see it. Uh, so these are four characteristics of God um, that we used several sermons ago. I didn't make these up. Somebody else um, came up with them. And it's just a helpful way. It's like here's four ways to think about what's God like. God is great, glorious, good, and gracious. And so in this moment, um, which of these, you know, consider Abram's circumstances, which of these is Abram believing uh, or helping him to say, like, God, I believe that you can do this. Which one of these, or you know, which of these would be helpful? It can be multiple. Did this help to bring it down here? He's believing that he's great because it doesn't seem like it's possible for Sarah to get pregnant. Yeah, he's in control. He's powerful enough to do it. He's God's great. Yeah, against all odds. Anything else that would help him in this situation? I think that God is gracious. He he does. This. God's not saying you got to do all these things before I give you a child. He's just I'm going to give you a child. Yeah, I want to do this for you, Abram. Here it is. Yeah, even though we already have seen him mess up, and even though in this moment he's doubting and feeling like. God, is this really going to happen? And God's like, okay, yeah, that's not anymore because you doubted me. He's like, no, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Any others? God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. Yeah, because God's going to do it. I don't have to figure out a different way to make this happen. Yeah. I know Glorious is the only one next, so I'm not going to say any other ones, but is there any <laughs> other angles that you would maybe see on, like, maybe you would add something to somebody else, something someone else said? If not, that's okay. So, this verse that we just looked at is quoted four times in the New Testament, and we read one of them earlier, Romans 4, it's quoted twice there, actually, and a righteous life um, is what God requires from us. Um, uh, the verse I'm talking about is verse 6, um, where he says, you believe, God, believe the Lord and it's counted to him as righteousness. And living righteously means that we love God and we love others. And the, but the problem is none of us actually does this perfectly. None of us really loves God with our whole heart or loves other people like ourselves um, because most of the time we're too busy loving ourselves to love other people. So we're worried about what's in it for me, you know, how's this going to affect me, and so we're not looking out for loving God or loving other people. And in this verse, Abram is not <coughs> credited with righteousness because he lives a righteous life. He's credited with righteousness because he trusts God. The word counted is like this economic term. It's almost like imagine Abram has this bank account, um, and when he trusts God, righteousness is deposited into that bank account, um, but we all know how bank accounts work. Money doesn't, you know, magically show up in our bank account. So where does this righteousness come from? Well, we learned 
Uh, we learn in the New Testament that it comes from Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our unrighteous lives so that now whoever trusts in him can swap their unrighteousness for his righteousness. That song, The Power of the Cross, we, we sang was he became sin for us. And now we can be freed from our sin and we can have righteousness put into our accounts. And our unrighteousness was put into his account on the cross. And he paid it off. And then when we trust in him, his, right, his righteousness gets put into our account. So even though we are guilty and unrighteous and selfish and ungodly, God declares us righteous based on grace and what Jesus has done. It's not something we've done. We get something we don't deserve. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans 4 that Laurel read for us, argued with the Jewish leaders of his day about where righteousness comes from. And we ask, well, where does this righteousness in Abram's account come from? And the Jewish leaders of his day said, well, it comes from a righteous life. You need to work for it. You need to earn it. And when you work for it, like we work today, like it gets put into your account and you get to accumulate it in there. But then Paul points back to Abram and says, no, look, righteousness comes through faith. If it comes through our works, no one will ever be righteous, but it comes through faith in God as a gift. It's like, you know, we, when we're working, we're getting what's due to us. And Paul's like, no, no one could ever work enough. Look at Abram. It got put into his account as a gift that he didn't even have to earn. So if you've trusted in Jesus, it's been counted to you as righteous. But as we said before, our faith can flicker just like Abram's did. We can feel it dying down from a roaring fire into just this little flickering flame. And God says that he says, but we may look at our situation and ask, well, God, why haven't you healed me? God, why do I still struggle with sin? God, why am I still prideful and selfish and anxious? Why aren't you taking this away? God, why am I not able to overcome this stuff in my life? God, why am I suffering? Why is life so hard? Why is my, you know, things with my kids or things with my spouse or things at school or things with my friends, why is this all so hard? God, why aren't you helping me? And when we met this week, um, Nick Larry and I in our Gospel Fluency group, Nick pointed out that Abram doesn't just ask for help, like, God, here's the things I need help with, but he actually expresses his doubts and his fears to God. And sometimes we just, you know, kind of put our little requests out there and we don't actually share our feelings and where we're at, you know, how, what's going on in our life with God, but Abram brings it to him. And then the good news is that God doesn't say, like, get out of here, just trust me. He reassures him and talks to him and tells him, like, no, this, you can trust me in this. And God actually makes the first move toward Abram, the first person who speaks in this passage, God, fear not, and goes and talks to him and addresses his doubt, and he reassures him. And so do you believe, we need to believe uh, that God is willing and eager to reassure us, and that he loves us, and he's for us, and he's with us. We need to be believe those, those truths. And if you're like me, you probably often believe the, God, the lie that God is just, he kind of looks like this. He's just kind of watching and waiting, waiting for you to get your act together, to get your faith stronger so he can like do things in your life. And he's just kind of watching. And he's not eager to help you um, and to speak into your life, to reassure you and comfort you. But this passage itself, just this passage given to us, reassures us that God is not like that. He wants to help us through our doubts and through our fears. So that's the first cycle of God's interaction with Abram. And the second, Abram brings up the issue of land. First there's childlessness, and now it's land um, he's bringing up. And God knows more is on Abram's mind, and so he reassures him again in verse 7. He said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans 
to give you this land to possess. And remember, God called Abram to leave his place and to leave his people. He left Ur where his family had settled um, for a place that God says, I'm going to show you a place. And then the crazy part is that Abram did it. Like, can you imagine, uh, like, leave everything you know um, to go to a place where, you know, you're going to just have to trust me? And Abram shows this remarkable trust in God. But now, having left the security of his family behind for the promises of God, he sits with no children and no land to call his own. And so God reminds him, well, I called you out of what you knew and out of your place of security to give you this place this land that you're looking at. That promise still stands, Abram. I know it doesn't feel like it or look like it, but the promise still stands. And God recognizes, I think it's important for us to, re God recognizes what Abram left behind. You know, he isn't just like, forget about that. You know, he, he recognizes, like, you left this behind, Abram. And then he also reminds them of what is ahead. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, that means we're going to leave things behind. It means there's going to be sacrifices and God values those. He isn't just like, no, that's just what you should do um, and just get rid of it. I don't really care. He like values it. You see him talking to Abram about it. And he receives those like his sacrifices, his praise to him. But then he also sets our eyes on the greater prize. And then Abram responds in verse 8. He says, uh, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram owns none of it now. And it seems so far from his current reality. And so he asks for some reassurance. And Abram's already expressed his trust in God. Um, and he's trying to grow that trust. And there's this one time when somebody came up to Jesus. And they said to Jesus, um, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, and, then G and so we can come to God and say, like, God, I'm believing, but please help my unbelief. We can ask him for help. And God responds in a remarkable way. He enters into a covenant with Abram. And God doesn't have to do that, like God of the universe, one guy living 4,000 years ago, and God says, okay, you know what, I'm going to make you know, a contract with you, and like this binding agreement with you, and it's, that's, he didn't have to do that, that just shows his grace, and he says, you're, uh, Abram, how are you going to be certain that you're going to possess this land? I'm going to sign a contract with you, and there's this weird ritual uh, that we saw where Abram has these animals and then he cuts them up and you know, odd things are happening. It may sound strange to us, uh, but for Abram, this would have made total sense. And there's examples that are like this in Abram's time where people talk like this is how you make a covenant and a contract with somebody else. And so Abram gives, or God gives Abram this list of animals to get. Abram cuts them in half, separates the two halves, and so there's like this bloody pathway that gets created. And as the sun goes down, God comes to Abram and reassures him verbally. He tells him, before your descendants possess this land, you know, this could create a lot of anxiety and worry. And I'm like, okay, Abram, your descendants are going to have 400 years before they possess this land. He's making, you know, letting him in on this, this thing that's going to happen with his family and the nation that comes from his family. They're going to go down to Egypt. Or it actually doesn't say that. They're going to go be servants in another nation. They're going to be afflicted after 400 years. I'm going to bring judgment on that nation. They're going to come out. And the story of the Bible, the book of Exodus, covers this moment. It picks up where the end of Genesis, well, 400 years after the gen end of Genesis. Um, and Egypt is the nation that um, brings them into slavery. And then God brings them out by Moses. And But he's saying to him, even though this bad stuff will happen, he's saying, Abram, be reassured that they are going to come back 
to this place and they're going to call it their own. And you notice God's timeline is often much different than ours because he said, Abram, leave Ur of the Chaldeans, leave your family, I'm going to give you this land. And now it's actually it's going to be 400 years before your family gets this land. And sometimes we get very impatient with God and we say, God, you said you do this. It's been a couple months, it's been a couple days, it's been a couple hours. Please do this. And it's like, well, his timeline's a lot different. And spoiler, Abram waits 25 years before he actually has the child that God promises to him. He's 75 when God tells him you're going to have this kid. He's 100 when he actually um, is able to have it. So God's timeline's much different. But what's the reason for the delay? Why the 400 years? Well, God says it's because the sin of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled. Um, so God, the Amorites are a group of people living in the land of Canaan that God's going to give to Abram. But God's not going to just boot out this, those people and play favorites with Abram's family. There's, there's justice involved and fairness. And so God's actually going to use Abram's family, the nation that comes from his family, to bring justice on this group of people um, who have forfeited their right to the land because he says the sin, that's when it's going to be time for um, their sin to be, to be judged. And after this verbal reassurance, God reassures Abram visually of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appear representing the presence of God and it passes between this passageway of cut up animals. Um, and in some cases, the way that people did this um, in Abram's day, it was kind of like two parties making a covenant together or a contract would walk through it and say, may this happen to me if I'm the one who breaks this covenant. But what's amazing is it's not God and Abram walking through it. It's just God walks through this. And so he's saying, I am taking full responsibility for fulfilling these promises. Abram, this is all grace. This is totally unconditional. It's not conditioned upon you doing X, Y, or Z. It's not conditioned upon the strength of your faith or your obedience or how righteous your life is. This is totally me. I'm, no matter whether you deserve it or not, I'm going to give this land to your family. And God is telling Abram, I'm completely committed to you. I will not break this promise. You can bank on it. And so we can think, well, how would you feel if you knew God was that committed to you? How would you feel if you knew God loved you this much? And the good news is that he does. If you've trusted in Jesus, he is that committed to you, and he loves you that much. And know this, here's a truth you can take away from this passage. Know that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Always. He never breaks a promise. God never goes back on his word. God always does what he says he will do. And 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Through Jesus, God has fulfilled all the promises that he has for us. And the big question this passage answers is, how does God strengthen flickering faith? And here's how. Uh, just this one statement. Promises from God are fuel for faith in God. How does God strengthen flickering faith? Promises from God are fuel for faith in God. Promises from God are fuel for faith in God. When the fire of our faith dies down to a small flicker or a few smoldering coals, it's the logs of God's promises that need to be put back on it that are going to bring it back to life and bring it back to a roaring fire. And the fuel that keeps faith burning is the, are the promises of God. That's what faith feeds on. That's what feeds the fire of our faith. And we need to know that we can trust God 
and they will keep his word. That's what faith is built on, built on knowing that someone will keep their promises, and the promises of God are what put fuel in the fire of our faith. But we also need to know what those promises are, because God hasn't promised to just do whatever we ask of him. Um, he has promised to do what he says he's going to do. That's how promises work. It's not, you know, here's just this blank check, you guys, and, you know, just kind of like put whatever you want, and I've already signed it. It's no, God, you can make, know you're going to cash the check and it's not going to bounce, but God's written in what he's giving us. It's not just a, a blank check. Um, and Abram has promised children, but we aren't promised to that. That's not a promise that God gives us. And Abram has promised a land, and we are too, just not in the same way. We're not promised a physical land here and now. We're promised to inherit a new creation when Jesus returns. So we're given that promise. But there's three categories um, that we can think of. I'm going to write them on here. Three categories that we can think of um, for God's promises. And we're just going to fill them in a little bit together. Um, so one is that um, God promises that um, we have been saved from the penalty of our sin. When we trust in Jesus, you can bank on that promise that you have been saved from the penalty of your sin. Um, secondly, God promises that in the present, we are being saved from the power of our sin that no longer has dominion over us. And then in the future, he promises we will be saved from the present. So it's a past, present, future. So we're going to I'm going to write down, so it's, um, have been saved from penalty of sin. That's in the past. God deals with all of our sins. Every sin is in the past, right? So if I sin right now, it's already in the past, as soon as I confess it. So we have been saved. And so we're just going to put, but this can kind of be like, okay, great. I'm not super excited about that. Um, I, need some, I need some help getting excited about that. So here's a question I want us to answer together. It's, um, if, where is it, found it, what are words the Bible uses to describe someone who's been saved from the penalty of their sin? Does that make sense? If you've been saved from the penalty of your sin, what are words the Bible uses to describe that state? Right. There we go. Okay, right. Good. I'm glad the question made sense. At least one person. Or no, Katie, maybe Katie's a plant. And I uh, told her what to say before. Like, made white as snow? I think that's what you're thinking. Yeah. Okay. Redeemed, redemption. Reborn? What was that? Reborn. Reborn? <coughs> oh, i got to get redeemed up here. I'll turn it so we're There we go. So if you've been saved from the penalty of your sin, what is now true of you? You're free. You're no longer a slave to sin. Free? Free. <coughs> I'd say forgiven, too. Forgiven. What's true about you and God, your relationship with God? Reconciled. Reconciled? You're so... Apprehensive about it. Seems like there was some other word that's better. Reconcile. No, that's a good word. Mm -hmm. Think of the image of like there's an open pathway, like you have access. To access. God. Yeah. Access to God. Yeah, all those barriers that were in our way cleared out. Penalty of sin is gone. Oops, that's not a D. I don't know what that was. 
Yeah, so all that's true. Secondly, that's in the past. Every single sin you commit is always in the past, and so you've been saved from the penalty of all those sins when you trust in Jesus. And then in the present, um, you are, these are things God has promised us in Christ. You are being saved, um, because none of us are perfect yet, right? Um, and God, that's the reason we get together and talk about God's word, because we're constantly needing to repent um, and turn away from sin <coughs> towards the life God calls us to. The reason we can do that is because we've been saved from the power of sin. The shackles of sin are no longer on us. They've been broken, and so now we're no longer enslaved to it. So what words would the New Testament or the Bible use to describe someone who's been saved from the power of sin? That might be overlapping words with what we already said. Free. Yeah. No longer under sin's power. <coughs> Bless you. Delivered. You said delivered? Yeah. Delivered? Yeah. You were a slave. Now you've been delivered from that. Another way you could ask it, if God promises we're being saved from the power of sin, what does that mean if it's true of us? How would you, if you're like, you're free of the power of sin, how would you describe yourself now? You're part of the, uh, the body of Christ. Part of the body of Christ. So you've been, now you're out of the slave master, now you're with a new community. Maybe this, maybe we think mostly about this one. This one's harder to answer. Or maybe it's a little more um, harder to grasp, maybe. I would think a word would be uh, or tran being transformed. These would all maybe be like uh, present tense words, like we're being transformed, we're being something. Like we're being made new. Transformed. We're like becoming more like Christ. Yeah. gives us his spirit. He gives us the power, not just like, okay, that power is no longer over you. He gives us a new power. Power. Okay. Let's turn to um, will be saved. Uh, so it's not, so even though sin no longer has power over us, the shackles are off it, us. There's still like sin present in us, but the promise of the future is that we will be saved from the presence of sin. God promises there will be a new creation. Sin will be no more. Um, they'll, they'll be gone, done with. So that's the future that God promises. Um, so it's will be saved from the presence of sin. So what words would uh, describe someone or that sort of future? What will a future be like free from the presence of sin? Eternal life. Life. Eternal life. 
no sadness, mm-hmm. no effects of the sin. Sure. Maybe healed. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be totally healed. Like right now, we're kind of like in rehab. Like the healing is happening, um, but we'll be totally healed. You know, it doesn't totally fit with the positive tone of, of these, but I always think, when I think about that reality, I think about being undeserving of it, you know, and being, um, because of that, just immensely grateful. Uh, so. so you can say, grateful. we'll be blessed. Well, yeah. You just, someone who believes in that will be grateful. <coughs> So these are some of the promises that are yes to us in Christ. And that's why I wanted to spend a little time here, because when we read Abram, we're like, okay, like, does this apply to me? Like, am I promised to have kids? Um, but the promises that God gives us um, are in Christ. And these are the promises that are yes to us in Christ, that we have been saved from the penalty of our sin, we are being saved from the power of our sin, and we will be saved from the presence of of our sin. And God has done all these out of grace. These promises are not based on how good we are or how righteous our lives are. We don't deserve them and we couldn't earn them. They're gift received by faith. We can trust God that he's going to do them. And when we think about like God gives Abram this uh, visual to remember like okay, you know, that would have stuck in his mind too. Like I cut these animals in half and then I had this vision of God walking through them himself, binding himself that he is going to do this. And what's the maybe the visual that we could think of? What visuals has God given us that we can be like, yes, he is for sure going to do these things. These are for sure true. If any visuals he gives us, the New Testament through Jesus. We're going to do one in a couple weeks. We're going to do Caleb. No. <laughs> Caleb, what are you going to do in a couple of weeks? Baptism. Baptism is a great visual of like a God um, going into the water. My sins are washed clean. Um, I come out a new person and I'm free from the power of sin. It's not that the water itself does it, but our faith in Christ. And so this is visual to tell us this is what happens when you trust in Jesus and surrender to him. Um, and we want to think about like, and the baptism points us back to the cross, which is the ultimate. How can we trust God? Like, God, why should I be able to trust you? Um, why should I trust that you love me this much? Well, because he's already proven his love for us. Jesus already died on the cross. Romans 5, 8 says this. God proves his love for us in this, that Christ died for us when we were still sinners, totally undeserving, totally unloving of him, totally unloving of other people, totally prideful, and still Christ died for us to save us from our sins. That's what baptism reminds us of, that Jesus died, he went in the grave, but he came back out, and it was new life that he was given. And so, it's, if we want to know, like, how can I be sure that these promises God will really fulfill them? Well, it's because he's already signed the contract. Christ already died for us to make this all happen and make it all possible. So you may be thinking, uh, you, something you can think about is, which of these promises do you need for your faith right now? Remember the promises are like logs on the fire. If you're like, man, my faith is kind of medium flames, or it's maybe like really low flames, or maybe it's really high and you just need to keep putting things on. Like which of these are you needing to really um, really uh, 
grab onto and put on the fire of your faith right now. Maybe you're feeling, man, I just feel really guilty, and I feel really shameful. I feel like I don't have access to God. I don't feel like I'm good enough for God. I don't feel like I can talk to him. He doesn't want anything to do with me. We need to believe these, this pro, these promises that if you trust in Christ, you've been saved from the penalty of your sin. He sees you as righteous. He sees you as made white as snow. He sees you as redeemed and free, and you're reconciled with him. You've been forgiven. You're debt-free. You know, when we are guilty and shameful, we feel like we have this debt weighing on our shoulders. But how does it feel like you know somebody paid off your house or paid off your car? Who weighed off my shoulders? It's a bill I don't have to pay. And that's what it should feel like when God is saying this from the penalty of our sin. Or maybe you're like, God, you know, I'm just going to struggle with this sin my whole life. I don't know why I can't change. I don't know why I can't start stop being harsh with my kids. I don't know why I can't stop being harsh with my spouse. I don't know why I can't you know, stop doing these things that I keep doing. You need to believe the promises that you've been set free and you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit and Jesus is transforming you, making you new day by day. Or then maybe you're just kind of like, you know, what's in the future? I don't know. Like you're worried and anxious and stressed. We talked about that last week. And you need hope. And then you need to believe the promises that, well, <coughs> Jesus has an amazing future for you, that you're going to be saved from the presence of sin. The New Testament calls Jesus' return our blessed hope. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to usher in a new creation where we're going to have eternal life. We're going to be blameless. It's going to be joy. Everything's going to be healed. Revelation 21 says, going to be no mourning or pain or crying anymore because behold God's making all things new and so we have a bright future that song we sang last week great is thy faithfulness said strength for today bright hope for tomorrow that's what's true of us um, as, as Christians um, who believed in Christ and like Abraham we all have ups and downs in our faith we need to look to God and his promises to strengthen our faith to put those logs on the fire and there's, a, there's this band I've quoted them before I may not remember, maybe you weren't here, there's a band called Rent Collective, and they have this video explaining one of their albums, and in it they say, someone trying to follow Jesus on their own is like a branch taken from the fire, lifeless and cold. Because as soon as you take a branch out of the fire and set it out on the grass, you know, if it's not super dry and you start a forest fire, you set it on the grass, set it on the concrete, there we go, set it on the concrete, it's just going to... It's going to lose its life and it's going to become cold. Whereas those branches and coals all together, like they hold their heat for a really long time. And our faith will never be on fire if we're trying to follow Jesus on our own. And we're reminded of God's promises. You know, God maybe will never speak to you in your life in a direct way, you know, like his words, you know, flowing into your brain or, or whatever, in an audible way. But he's given us this word here and he's put his spirit, his presence in each event, every one of us who follows Jesus, and now we can experience his presence and have his promises spoken to us um, by the Holy Spirit working in us. You know, God's direct word to us that he's written to us and through his Holy Spirit to us to reassure us, remind us of his promises and put those logs on the fire of our face so we can be, and then as we work in community and live as a church family, we're seeing a picture of God's love his mercy, his grace for us. So all these things that Abram was given, we can have them to have our faith reassured as well. And it's only if we trust in God's promises together that we'll be a blessing to the world like God's called us to be. It's only if we have those logs on the fire of our faith as a community and it's, it's blazing that we'll be a light to the world, showing the world what God's like um, and being a, a witness and surrendering all of life to Jesus, as our mission says, and inviting others to be the same. And when we surrender to those promises and put them on the fire, then we get to shine as a light together to our community, um, to one another sometimes, 
um, and to the world. And that's what God has called us to. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these reminders that you, your promises are real and you've secured them in Christ Jesus that we don't have to worry. Well, are you really going to do that? Will you really, are you really saving us? Will you really forgive us? You've already proven that you will because Jesus has already died. So, Father, would you put these logs on the fire of our faith? Would you fan them into the flame by your Holy Spirit and ignite them? And would you let us together to look to your promises and to remind each other of them? In your son's name we pray. Amen.